This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by Gates Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of February 2nd, 2015, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 213 of Defender Radio. The news this year has been all about the cousins of our domestic dogs, wolves and coyotes. Increased sightings of coyotes throughout areas of Ontario have caused a spike in complaints, heightened fear of predators, and even resulted in lethal action. Our friends at Coyote Watch Canada, however, have been working non-stop since December to show the media the truth about coyotes and how we can live with them. Further west, Wolves are in the crosshairs in both Alberta and British Columbia as governments scramble to find ways to protect endangered caribou herds in both provinces. Even though science and public opinion is against them, the kills are well underway. And it's coming down to wolf experts like Dr. Paul Paquette to speak out against them. Let's get started with the coyotes. Leslie Sampson, founder and executive director of Coyote Watch Canada, was all over the news, dispelling myths and sharing education with the media and municipalities. She joined us recently to fill us in on the busy month she's had, remind us of a few basic lessons on coyote coexistence, and talk about what's really behind increases in coyote sightings. 2014 was a busy year for you. Uh, later in the year, you were emailing me, uh, complaining about all of the wonderful media attention you were getting. Uh, there were some, what I would consider relatively minor conflict situations, but the media really got on the story west of Toronto. Uh, what happened in that time period, and, and why was the media so interested in it? I, I think that the timing for a peaked interest was long overdue because usually the stories that are carried uh, unfortunately have a weight of sensationalism to them. And although that did come out um, briefly throughout the stories, they were more interested in the process of actually conducting an investigation. This was something novel. It was something that was uh, of interest to the media. We had... um, numerous uh, requests to accompany accompany us out into the field to do the actual um, foot and field investigation. So it was an exciting time in terms of uh, really connecting with the media at a different level. And what were the calls you were receiving about? I mean, it was it was largely the, the area considered sort of west of the city or the 905. Uh, so for those listeners outside of the Toronto area, that's pretty much ranging from the suburbs immediately to the west all the way out to the western edge of the lake in Burlington before it sort of curves around into Hamilton. What were the situations that were occurring that were causing these investigations to get started? There is such a dramatic change in the landscape. So there's a loss of habitat through, um, you know, infrastructure so not just uh, residential buildings for um, people, but also new businesses uh, propping up and, uh, you know, the highway systems, repairs being done. So fences were being put up. People are out seeing these animals in the community and not really understanding 
um, why all of a sudden they're seeing them. They could have been in that landscape previously, but they were able to navigate unseen up until that point. And were there many actual conflicts occurring, or was it, um, and, and this is how you and I actually met several years ago, simply an increase in sightings? I think in, in these situations, there, wa there was um, an elevation, not only of awareness, but there was interactions taking place. There were quite a few areas that were what uh, we deemed hot spots because of feeding. And in particular, in the park locations, uh, new subdivisions being uh, built, and then a loss of habitat coupled with um, really the lack of education and really following through on maintaining good um, garbage handling techniques and not feeding the wildlife. So on the peripheral areas, of, uh, for example, in the city of Brampton, there's all this uh, construction going on. And so the wildlife is adjusting and people are new to the country or they're new to that area. They're not really familiar with the wildlife that is part of um, that ecosystem and then you get feeding taking place so th it was a combination and that's why it was really intriguing for the media because they finally grasped that it's not just one thing and I mean when you look at conflict between each other uh, never mind the wildlife um, it's very complex and layered and you really need to get out and do those investigations and um, Subsequently, that's why we, we went out together with City of Brampton personnel, uh, frontline personnel in Mississauga, and then the Ministry of Natural Resources. And I, I think it's also important to note that it's not just conflict with coyotes that you've been getting calls about as winter uh, has settled and is progressing. What other kind of calls has Coyote Watch Canada been receiving? Uh, well, we're, we're, we are always on the radar for folks that need assistance for animals that are injured or uh, visibly distressed because of mange um, or just, you know, basic information calls. But we also receive an elevation in calls regarding uh, coyote hunting and trespassing onto private property. They really don't know where to turn. A lot of times they aren't even aware of their rights as a um, resident that they do not have to allow uh, hunting and trespassing to take place on their property. And, you know, I, I will say that, you know, uh, an ethical hunter isn't going to behave in that way. Uh, but unfortunately, now with the snowfall, uh, this is the time of the year that the hound hunters are out. And that's the uh, rather gruesome practice of uh, unleashing scent dogs or chase dogs who effectively run down coyotes to the point of exhaustion, right? Yes, the, the dogs are switched off when they're tired and fresh um, dogs that have been waiting in the trucks are released. Uh, unfortunately, with <clears throat> with that style of uh, hunting, that technique lends itself to be extremely dangerous. Trucks are racing, dogs are running across roads, coyotes are fleeing, all sorts of other wildlife such as uh, deer flea, and then there's also livestock um, that are affected and impacted by these aggressive hunting dogs. We received a call from Gray Bruce and um, her one of the uh, farmers there, her donkey had actually 
come in between her and the hunting dog that was trespassing on her property. Well, it's pretty frightening stuff. Um, but uh, moving forward, uh, I think it's important for people to understand right now what coyotes are doing. Uh, because as we both know, this is one of the times of year when they'll end up being more visible to some residents uh, simply because they're out looking for food and there aren't leaves on trees. But what else are coyotes doing right now uh, that people should be aware of? Well, they're, they're foraging habits will change obviously with um you know depending on the snowfall and if there's a crust of ice so it's difficult for them to bust through to access those rodents living underneath uh this time of the year can lend itself to romance because they do start that mating process now now that we're into the month of january so uh they they may behave more territorial so it's always best to you know always know where your pets are have them on leashes safely uh and enclosed areas if you are leaving them out for any uh significant amount of time but you know also at this time of the year we've noted now for the last two decades that often uh the pack size will increase so there's what we refer to as a reunion so you might have aunt and uncles or siblings from the year before uh joining the that alpha pack um the parents and they might stay together for uh, several days or up to uh, over a week and then they disperse again so um where you might only see one or two coyotes in an area you might actually uh have a glimpse of a larger family unit but what we found typically is that they don't stay together they disperse again and um that's an interesting phenomena and are there any other uh simple tips people can have in terms of coexistence to really prevent conflict from occurring this time of year in particular yeah first of all i mean always keep your dog on a short leash those long leashes don't cut it um, you know, if you're in coyote territory, be aware. If you notice any remnants of food being left on the ground, please report it to the appropriate uh, authorities, whether it's animal services, um, you know, property standards at, at um, the city level. If you are out and you happen to see a coyote in the field, you know, make sure that you keep your uh, pet close on the leash. If you do um, happen to come face to face with a coyote on a path you always pick up that small child or dog and you know carry the appropriate tools that will um, really ensure that you can send that strong message to coyote that you know what when I'm on the scene you need to be gone and that could be the umbrella the shake can uh, you know being loud and assertive and just really be those eyes for the community they, uh, city staff appreciates when residents report feeding. And that's a real critical um, partnership between residents and city staff and Coyote Watch Canada. Um, also, you know, those compost piles right now give off not only a food source, but heat and manure piles and animals tend to gravitate towards those piles. Uh, because there is producing, um, uh, there's a heat source there, which helps in the winter time. And um, I guess the final note for uh, coyote behavior, 
if you happen to go into your barn and you do see a, a coyote or fox in the barn and uh, it looks like they have, um, you know, missing fur patches, they're in there to be warm. Uh, please give us a call. We have wonderful uh, rescue and rehab representatives and we know where to ha- get that help so don't be alarmed just leave that animal alone and, and make the phone call out to us at 931-2610 and we'll help you in the best way that we can to learn more about coyote watch canada visit www.coyotewatchcanada.com we'll be right back after these words from our sponsors you're listening to defender radio First, they tear a hole in your roof. Then they get in, destroying your insulation, chewing your electrical wiring. Raccoons and squirrels are eating away at your biggest investment, your home. I am Brad Gates of Gates Wildlife Control. Don't wait any longer. Call Gates Wildlife Control. We'll humanely get them out and keep them out. We will come to your house and provide you with a no-obligation free estimate. Please visit us at GatesWildlifeControl.com or call 416 416- Seven five zero nine four five three. After a night out with your friends, there are always options for getting home safely. You could call your BFF, take a cab, or maybe you'll grab the last bus. Now there's a smartphone app to help you choose your ride. Find out more at arrivealive.org. Millions of animals are killed for their fur each year in Canada. You can help stop the cruelty. Join the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals today and be the voice for those who can't speak for themselves. Find out more at furbearerdefenders.com. This is Defender Radio. It is shocking to think that governments can murder wolves en masse, claiming conservation as the cause. It's even more shocking when scientists across the country have said the plan to kill wolves won't protect the endangered caribou our governments want to save. We were recently joined by Dr. Paul Paquette, a University of Victoria professor and wolf expert with 40 years of experience to discuss the realities of the caribou and wolf debates and what we need to know about the cousins of our domestic dogs. Now let's let's talk about the... The very the two things I want to cover off is first the the killing of wolves in British Columbia in order to save a caribou herd. You had some very strong words when you were interviewed by the CBC and a couple of other organizations. Um, what what was your reaction to hearing that the BC government has approved the killing of over I think it's 180 wolves in order to try and protect an endangered caribou herd? You know, I wasn't I wasn't surprised. Uh, that they were planning to do that, and probably it was already underway when they announced it. Uh, I was mostly, uh, you know, upset by the idea that they had decided to go ahead with it, uh, given the evidence that we have and the role that caribou, I'm sorry, the role that wolves have in terms of uh, caribou and the decline of caribou over the long term. Um, so I, I was, I mean, frankly, just a bit outraged. Oh, definitely. Uh, well, that was one, along our reaction, too. Um, and one of the things I found very interesting was one study, and I believe this was the one out of Alberta, not British Columbia, but similar situations, 
that said wolf depredation accounted for maybe 37% of caribou loss, and the remaining loss was directly attributable to resource exploitation and habitat destruction. Well, you know, ultimately, uh, it's probably all attributable to that, uh, given the situation that, that we're in now. Uh, you know, the predation that uh, does occur, and wolves, as you know, do kill uh, caribou on occasion, uh, is in part attributable to that industrialization of the areas where, you know, that uh, caribou depend on. Uh, so it contributes to the predation. Uh, uh, part, a large part of that 37% would be the result of uh, caribou having increased access uh, to, I'm sorry, wolves having increased access to caribou. And that's through the uh, a lot of things like logging roads and um, some of the, 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 ga- or the gullies they end up cutting into the land, correct? Well, it's a variety of things. It would be everything from logging roads to uh, seismic lines to um the uh well even snowmobile trails uh atv trails a uh, whole variety of things that provide that opportunity for wolves to move about really freely and easily and to access caribou uh mostly in the winter when caribou have retreated to areas that provide uh refugia for them from predators uh, you know, so that that increases the rate of predation on caribou, at least the opportunity for it. In studies that we conducted a number of years ago, uh, we were able to compare caribou uh, and uh, or wolf predation on caribou in areas uh, where there were were no trails, there was no compaction of snow, for example, as a consequence of uh, snowmobiles, uh, roads that were being uh, cleared or used. Uh, and we, we found about two and a half times the rate of predation on caribou in those areas that had been industrialized and uh, um, you know, where there were opportunities for uh, wolves to travel easily into caribou areas, as opposed to the ones that are more pristine. Well, and that's and undisturbed. Yeah, and that's to me. Uh, again, I am not a scientist. My background is journalism. But when I look at that information, I say. Well, we could get rid of every single wolf, but it wouldn't fix the problem. I imagine that is very much the response of scientists right now. Uh, why do you think the government then is kind of ignoring that clear, here's the real problem, and here is a subset of that problem, and not focusing on the major issue? Well, I, I think there's a, a couple of things here. First of all, it is true, and I have to reiterate, that wolves prey on caribou, as they always have. Uh, but the role of the wolf in uh, the ongoing decline of mountain and boreal caribou, and this is important, in Western Canada is more of a symptom and not an underlying cause. I mean, clearly people are the ultimate cause, as we just uh, discussed, of caribou endangerment, and that's through the ongoing degradation that's imposed by primarily the resource industries on caribou habitat. But what we've done and what governments are doing typically is scapegoating uh, wolves, and it's really an immorally and, I think, scientifically bankrupt attempt to protect Canada's uh, what I would call industrial sacred cows, oil and gas, mining, (laughs) and forestry. I believe that is accurate. Yeah, and and I think that's largely what's happening there. But this relentless destruction of... You know, the forest wilderness, you know, which is going through industrial development, has pretty much uh, 
in the long term conspired to deprive caribou of what they need in their terms of their life requisites and and simultaneously exposing them to these levels of wolf predation they never evolved with and they aren't and I think they're incapable of adapting to but the governments habitually are favoring the destruction of wolves over any what I would think would be consequential protection or enhancement or restoration of caribou habitat um, I think there's a couple things here that people aren't aware of uh, first of all the caribou as a species are not endangered or threatened uh, and so we're really talking ab about ecotypes of caribou uh, and primarily the ones of concern are the mountain caribou and the boreal caribou but they're all the same species and they do uh, uh, interbreed with one another and, and so on um, and, and I think everybody is concerned that uh, it, it doesn't look good for these particular ecotypes in some parts of Alberta and, and British Columbia that uh, appear to be on a long-term, in some cases, fairly short-term slide to extinction. And uh, whether that's reversible or not, I think is what a lot of scientists are, are uh, and why they're questioning the government's actions. Uh, many of us believe that these populations are doomed. Uh, the habitat is not there to support them. And uh, so even if wolves were responsible for this decline and, and maybe approximate rather than ultimate uh, cause, uh, killing them uh, isn't going to affect uh, the sustainability of these populations over the long term. Uh, I think that's clear. It certainly feels like they're checking the air pressure and the tires when the transmission is dragging behind the car. Um, <laughs> yes, it certainly does feel that way. And I, I think that's probably the best description uh, that I've heard. Uh, I, and I think that, uh, to me, uh, most of the scientists who are involved in this recognize that this, that's the case. Uh, and so, you know, to, again, focus on wolves, Keeping in mind that there are multiple other predators uh, in those areas where caribou are being threatened. So uh, there's predation taking place by wolverine, well documented, by brown bears, which are grizzly bears, by black bears, cougars are a big uh, predator, uh, even lynx. Uh, and in the southern parts of British Columbia, um, again, cougars are probably the primary predator. So this focus on wolves is a bit odd in that sense. Well, and that's something that I've really seen. Uh, uh, part of my job is to read all of the news stories about these issues, and I, I read the comments on the internet. And something I have found very interesting is the people who are supportive of this are saying wolves do damage to livestock, wolves are a threat to humans, wolves are this and that. And to me, it speaks of a culture of fear of these animals. Um, now, with all of your experience, would you say that humankind still has some form of instinctual or even cultural fear of wolves and other large canids? Yeah, I think that there's no doubt that that's the case. And, uh, and part of what we're seeing is an expression of exactly that. Uh, you know, so the cultural um, response carries over to what governments do. And I, and I think that... Uh, you know, wildlife management and wildlife managers are, are very different than uh, people who involved with wildlife conservation and, and how they view the world. Uh, and it's much more manipulative, um, I think, as you're well aware, 
uh, and uh, they, there's very little focus on individuals, uh, for example, individual animals, or concern about individuals. It's all about uh, a focus on populations overall. So you can dilute away any of the concerns about uh, individuals or any of the uh, ethical quandaries that, that you might have typically uh, that would, uh, where people would concern themselves uh, about killing animals. And, um, you know, in this case, and I, I think I've commented on it publicly a couple of times, is that uh, even if we could uh, decide that wolves were responsible for uh, the decline of caribou and are going to be uh, ultimately pushing caribou in, uh, towards extinction, uh, and made some sort of decision that they should be killed, uh, then you have to start to look at the methods. I mean, how are we killing them? And in, and in this case, uh, the, the approaches that have been used and the methods that have been used, uh, in Alberta, for example, you know, they're still using strychnine, and this is uh, unbelievable in the 21st century. Uh, aerial gunning, which is not at all humane, uh, even though that people try to portray it as being humane, uh, snaring, you know, neck snaring, uh, slow deaths there most often. Um, all of the methods that are in place and being used uh, are very, very inhumane, and uh, I would think that they're uh, unacceptable from uh, if most of the public understood, uh, you know, what they do. Yeah, you know, it's it's odd for me when I first got involved in animal advocacy. I was looking at a lot of the history of um, trapping and hunting and things like that. And the things that you just said were the the things being used by the U.S. government in, you know, the late 19th century is when they started. Um, and that was the best way to do it. I mean, it was like using the cyanide darts and things like that, that eventually right, a child, exactly, a child steps on it and all of a sudden we realize, gee, maybe this isn't a good idea, but they're still doing it here. Um, it's, it's very shocking. Now, one, one of, I think maybe the most important questions is we've clearly got a lot of people out there who oppose this hunt, who understand the very, very basic ecological science behind the argument that killing the wolves won't fix the problem. But there are still so many people, as we said, that have this fear of wolves and other predators. How do we communicate to them? that wolves aren't some kind of big, scary fairy book character, that they're a, an incredible animal that deserves respect and at the very least simple protection. And compassion. I, I, I think, uh, you know, that, it's difficult. And you know, this is an issue and has been an issue for many, many years and trying to convey that uh, to people who really are, are and, and I would say, ignorant of what wolves are and, and, and who they are. Um, I, I think one of the mechanisms for doing that is uh, people typically can relate well to dogs, domestic dogs, and and, uh, and of course most of us know that wolves are just wild dogs. Um, and I, I think that that's a potential link uh, that's useful in um, you know bringing people along so that they understand that wolves are not as have. Uh, uh, as they've been portrayed uh, for, for really centuries. I, I think it's fair that people understand that they are large and potentially dangerous animals, as all wild animals are, but no more so than, than elk or moose or deer. 
um, or any other you know, wild animal that you might encounter. Um, but the mythology around wolves has been in place for millennia. And, and trying to change that uh, is very difficult because, as, as you mentioned earlier, you know, this is part of the culture. And um, you know, changing myths that are embedded in cultures and trying to do that in a, uh, a short time uh, is a, a really monumental task. And, and yeah, I'm a, Sorry, I was going to ask something I, I would be curious about is, as you said, you're a professor at University of Victoria. Um, is it possible, or, or do you do this, manage to teach that basic compassion for the wildlife that, that future biologists will be studying while still being able to maintain that scientific, um, I, I want to say unbiased, but uh, everybody has a bias, that, but that scientific state of mind? Are you able to sort of display both of those to that next generation? Yeah, I, I think that's a, probably the most important question you asked. And uh, yes, uh, the answer, the simple answer is yes. And uh, there's no reason that you can't be compassionate. And, and one of the, the efforts that we're now promoting is the idea of compassionate conservation. And, and you know, this gets back to more than just uh, tolerance of animals. Uh, it gets uh, to the acceptance of them. And there's a there's a, a slight difference there, but it's an important one. And uh, it goes back to what you mentioned earlier, the respect for the animals and uh, species. I, science, uh, and one of the things that we try and teach, and, and we certainly focus on ethics, and uh, the ethics as they relate to science in particular, is that science in itself doesn't give you permission to do anything. And, and this is, uh, I think, one of the flaws uh, when we look at issues like the uh, wolf kill or the decision to kill wolves to benefit caribou, uh, the government and the scientists who are involved in it will fall back on what they claim is the good science that, uh, and the, the need then to kill wolves uh, to protect caribou. Um, and, and in essence, they're saying, well, the science is giving us permission to go ahead and do this immoral act, uh, you know, and, and to kill animals in a way that's causing you know, uh, pain and suffering. Uh, but we have an exemption because science says that's okay to do. Well, that's a very, very slippery ro uh, slope to be on. Um, you know, you consider that this is a, essentially what they're using is a, a uh, ends uh, justifies means argument, which is always a dangerous way uh, to approach anything. And, um, with our students, uh, and we've been doing this for a, a long time, these are always uh, topics that, that we try to address and, uh, and make sure that they understand that you know, science is, is something that we do, but science doesn't determine our ethics, it doesn't determine our morals, it doesn't determine how we treat animals. Um, and, and, and science itself, though, does have to have uh, an ethical dimension. To learn more about the BC and Alberta wolf kills and how you can get involved in bringing them to a stop, visit our blog at FurBearDefenders.com. That's the show for this week, folks. I'd like to thank our guests, as well as Brad Gates of AAA Gates Wildlife Control for his ongoing support. Until next time, this is Michael Howie reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.